You are listening to the Boss Level Podcast. It has been a while since the previous Boss Level episode aired. The last couple of years turned out to be pretty busy. Being a father to two small boys and being CEO of two companies while trying to stay sane in this crazy world was enough and something had to give. But it's slightly less hectic now. The boys are not babies anymore and our family sleeps at night, so that helps. Our companies sold our subsidiary, Dias, the real estate platform that we built, so I'm only CEO of one company now. So that helps too. And I am happy to be back to podcasting. The guest for this episode is retired four-star General Stan McChrystal. Former U.S. Defense Secretary Robert Gates described McChrystal as perhaps the finest warrior and leader of men in combat. I interviewed McChrystal in 2017, and back then we talked about transforming a rigid military hierarchy into a network of autonomous teams. This time around, we talk about risk and how to manage it. I really hope you enjoy the episode. This episode is sponsored by Swan Lake Strategy. Swan Lake Strategy helps companies turn uncertain futures into new business opportunities and future-proof strategies. We all operate in a hyper-connected world that is constantly evolving and changing direction. Customer preferences shift, new competitors emerge, the world keeps getting more connected, and we need to fight global warming. Where should you place your bets when the game keeps changing? Swan Lake combines a unique set of skills and expertise. They create unique solutions and game-changing strategies boosted with mathematics. Eva Vilkuma, one of the people behind Swan Lake Strategy, has been a guest on this podcast. We discussed how companies can develop mathematical models to support their decision-making. I learned a lot from that episode and I suggest you listen to that episode right after you finish this one. Together with Swan Lake, you can tap into emerging business opportunities, prepare for the unexpected, and shape the markets to your benefit. Go check out Swan Lake's website and learn how to turn uncertainty into new business and growth. SwanLakeStrategy.com A traditional approach to risk management is to try to predict risks and then make plans on how to act when they realize. Uh, and I think your approach is more about accepting that predicting the future is pretty damn hard. And, and while it's still important to do it to some extent, it's even more important to improve your organization's general preparedness and ability to react. Am I getting you right? You're exactly right. First off, you know, we always use the Maginot Line as a great case where the French predicted a threat along part of their border and then the Germans went around it. So I think there are two points. The first is predicting the type of risk, the location and the timing is really hard. The second, I would say in many endeavors like war particularly, but also in business, if you predict or if you plan and prepare for something, you make it less likely to occur because a rational competitor is going to look at that and do something different. And so it doesn't mean that your initial prediction was wrong. It means that you change the dynamics. 
And so understanding that is really important. And having discussions about risk, I'm beginning to be of the opinion that like absolute statements about risk are actually a signal that the person making that statement doesn't really understand what they're talking about. So I'm referring to statements such as, uh, we can't compromise on security. Because that's actually a pretty silly thing to say, because in reality, all we do is compromise on security. And that's actually a really good thing, because it's not realistic to try to cover everything, since resources are always limited. So we should actually try to find compromises where our efforts produce the best amount of security available. What are your thoughts on this? For a while, I served in the Pentagon at that, in the senior leadership of the U.S. military. And there used to be this series, essentially, of scenarios they would create for which the U.S. military had to be prepared to fight. And at one point, it was the U.S. should be able to fight two and a half wars simultaneously and, <laughs> and win them all. And, of course, <laughs> the number of troops and aircraft carriers and things you need just swallows up the entire budget. And suddenly there are no schools, there's no anything else in society. Exactly, yeah. And so you have to say, okay, how much is enough? How much, what is reasonable amount of risk? And then to your earlier point, can we build a certain amount of capability, but then retain an adaptability so that if risk starts to arise or comes, we still have the ability to, to turn and deal with some things. And so I think that's the key part. Yeah, so essentially what you're saying is that uh, it's not realistic to be prepared for all the risks at the same time, at the same level. But what we can do is we can have, we can kind of make sure that we have a good initial response and then we have time to adapt as the situation progresses. In fact, I've been looking at different kinds of uh, events that happen, natural disasters, pandemic in this case, financial challenge or war. And about 85% of what we do in an effective response to any of those crises is the same. It's only a small slice that is actually unique to that particular problem. We've got to do all the basics well anyway. If you've got all the basics in pretty good shape, you then can focus on those unique things and you can develop you know, response to deal with what you didn't expect. Yeah, and I think one thing that kind of comes through in all these all these kind of scenarios and, and these examples is is the the amount of communication and actually how that's one of the things that need to happen first. That if there's something that emerges that we need to respond to quickly, I think one of the first things that happen in many of the successful uh, responses is that you get the relevant people together. And it's it's a most often it's a team that's cross-functional. There are different people from different parts of different organizations, and and it's also not only the top leadership. It's also people who who have a better understanding of of the the grassroots things that are happening. W would you agree that that's one of the things that often happens first, and it's it's crucial that that does happen first when we are successful. That that's right. Whether it's a financial <laughs> crisis, the first thing to do is get a diverse number of perspectives, so you start to get a fairly complete picture of what the problem really is, and what are all the things out there. Because if you just see one narrow slice of it, it's like the blind man and the elephant. You see one part, you define it, and then you react maybe rationally to that narrow view. And so, getting that what we would call common operating picture or shared consciousness of the problem. And it sounds easy when you and I talk, say, well, just get everybody together and describe it. 
But in today's environment, although technologically we have the ability to connect people, culturally and habitually, we don't. And then we have the, the additional problem of a lot of information that we get is incorrect now. It's either intentionally or unintentionally wrong, and therefore we confuse our, our understanding. Well, if you think about the diversity, what, what comes as a result of that is, of course, we come up with better options and we come up with things that we probably wouldn't come up with otherwise. But the problem with having diversity in a situation like this is that it also, like, it takes a lot more time to find consensus since we have differing opinions. So what's, what's your view on, like, how do we find a balance where we have enough diversity to get, like, a good amount of options out there, but then we still are able to act quickly. Yeah, it's a great description because, as you know, you have a crisis come up, so you call your close buds who are a lot like you. You get together and you all agree, and that's comforting. You say, wow, we yeah. have absolute clarity and consensus, and you move forward. But the reality is you all see things in a like way, so it's naturally limited. The other thing is you go get people in this wide set of perspectives and you bring them in and there's a certain percentage of them that that don't follow any rules and therefore you make the process so messy you can't get to any real action. So my belief is you've got to bring people of diverse perspectives, but there have to be group norms on the process. And the way we did it in the best organizations I was in is you have two phases to it. Phase one, you're bringing everybody together and everybody's putting all their information on the table and you're doing it. And then you make a decision. And for phase two, nobody's allowed to bring new information or nobody's allowed to revisit phase one. When you're in the implementation or execution phase, they can't go, no, we really need to do this. Say, nope, that time passed. Now, if there's new information that wasn't available that would change the calculation, that's fair. But I, I don't know how many organizations I've been in where a decision is made, slap the table, and then as you walk out, a whole bunch of people start working against that decision, trying to reverse no. it. And as a consequence, it's not implemented effectively. Preparing for risks uh, consumes a lot of time and resources, as we know, and, and time and resources that we could be spending on, for example, having a positive impact on the revenue of the company, for example. What's a good amount of time and effort to spend on risk preparedness? If we define risk preparedness as analyzing the potential risks that come and doing mathematical calculations on, boy, that would be horrible if a tidal wave came and that sort of thing, that is a small component of preparing for risk. Just like if we talk about wars or risk, I've often asked, what would you do if you were about to go into a new war? And I tell them, and I'm only partially tongue-in-cheek, I said I would take the president, vice president, secretary of state, director of the CIA, and the generals who are going to run it, and I'd go whitewater rafting. And you say, no, whoa, wait a minute, that's ridiculous. And I said, no, I'd go whitewater rafting, and I'd take a bunch of beer, and I wouldn't talk about anything to do with war. I would build relationships between the players because when it comes, you are going to need relationships that happen under high pressure situations at great distance, often digital connectivity in a moment of a really important point in the operation. And if you don't have trust, if you don't have the sinew of relationships, you are far weaker. So if you talk to me about preparing for risk, I actually think about preparing for risk is building in your organization the sinew that allows you to respond to anything that comes. Suppose Martians land tomorrow. 
Well, we're not completely prepared for Martians, but we're a unified organization that passes information well, that responds to the unexpected. We are more prepared than somebody who spent years studying the possibility of Martians arriving. In your book, you uh, actually you share the, the following saying, uh, if three people are responsible for feeding the dog, the dog is going to starve. And uh, that's a fairly strong sentence against shared responsibilities. But yet, like if I think about our pre previous discussion, uh, you spoke about how important it is to remove constraints that people uh, people can use as excuses for why they didn't do something. And I am sure you've heard your share of the excuse, that's not my responsibility. So what are your thoughts on how do we get the benefits of clear responsibilities without them becoming excuses? I absolutely believe that if you don't have someone responsible that the dog gets fed, that the dog will suffer. So ultimately, someone needs to know that in the absence of anything else, they've got to make sure the dog got fed. At the same time, there's an idea called MISI, mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive. And that means that you divide all the tasks or responsibilities in an organization up so that everything's covered, but nothing is covered by more than one person or entity so you don't have redundancy or overlapping. And it's designed to be very efficient. It is, except it doesn't work. And it doesn't work because One, you'll have some failures in certain areas. Sometimes people don't do it. And nobody's covering for them. You know, the glass ball's thrown up. They miss it. And nobody else helps them catch it. Also, there are always very small gaps and seams. So I think you got to have two things. You got to have first this sense of shared responsibility. We are all responsible for the outcome. If we're all on an assembly line building cars. We're all responsible for whether it's a high-quality car that comes at the end. Whether we think we put our part on well and so the rest is not my fault, the mindset has got to be we are responsible for the car. We're also responsible for our part, but where you start to say we have this shared responsibility, you start with the idea of teamwork. I'm responsible to help you do your job a little bit better. I'm responsible if you're not there that day, what are we going to do about that? And a new person is replacing you. And so I believe that there's got to be a, an organic nature to this so that you're constantly passing information across your organization. People aren't narrowly focused in a, in a lane and not looking left and right. They should be looking left and right. And you get the right amount of cooperation without reaching in and, and taking somebody else's job from them. Uh, when it's not necessary. And this is the idea that organizations aren't organization charts. They're not machines. They are people. And so we've got to create in that this idea that because we are people, there's going to be this constant give and take, almost like a sailing ship. You know, you can set the sails perfectly, the rudder just right. But as soon as the sea change and the wind change, it's wrong. And so there's got to be constant adjustment as you go. This is really interesting because, because uh, yeah, I definitely agree in, in, in what you were saying about common or shared responsibility that like for the outcomes, that makes a lot of sense. But then when you mentioned, for example, the organizational chart, and, and, and this is actually one of the points that you also make in your book, is you make the argument that structure matters a lot. And this is, this is one point that I keep talking about a lot also. And it's uh, structure is one of those things that like I think 
I would actually go so far as to say that structure wins. So what I mean with that is if, if is if there's a structure uh, in place and there's uh, like some talk talk about doing something differently that is different from the structure, it's always the structure that eventually wins. And this is interesting uh, also in terms of responsibility. So for example, if we have a strict organizational chart, uh, and that is there. And for example, we have incentives uh, that kind of make you stay focused on a specific part of of the assembly line uh, of a car or, or whatever. Then uh, it's the structure that will win, even though we like we might have like a leader go to the front of the troops and tell them that shared responsibility is important. But then we have all the structures that make us focus on just one part. Any, any thoughts on this? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Structure does almost always win. And it does because, first off, there was a certain logic to the structure. You're put into a structure. You're sort of schooled to do that way. And even though there's ideas of shared consciousness, shared responsibility, at the end of the day, if you lack visibility on the entire structure, it's pretty presumptuous for you to reach out and do something that somebody else might be doing that you don't have visibility on. So I think as human beings, we sort of say, well, I will do what I'm told. I will assume that somebody else has got that covered. And it's not all evil. It is um, a little bit of hesitance. And people get used to that. And there's a, again, there's a comfort in that. And we are often incentivized for that. We are incentivized for doing that part which people want us to do, whether or not the overall outcome is right or it connects effectively to other parts of it. There was a, uh, an idea called Mission Command. It's still around. People use it in the military. And the idea is we give all different units in a military operation their specific parts of the operation and tasks to accomplish. But then we also brief them on the overall mission and say, here's what we're trying to do. If everything goes to hell, do whatever it is to get the, that accomplishes the, the big picture. And then suddenly people have the authority to go, well, I know I was doing this, but if we're going to accomplish this, I ought to do that. And where you make that work and you empower people, you get this extraordinary uh, ability to get better outcomes. And it is having the, the confidence in an organization to let people make that kind of decisions. Famous stories, I think it's Ritz Carlton used to allow $3,000 to each employee that they could make something right. So for example, you or I go to the hotel and there's something wrong and we're unhappy, they could spend $3,000 giving us a free night or a refund, whatever it is, without any approval. They just go, I'll make it right. Because they did the math and they said that if you retain a good, a good customer, it's far cheaper than having to go get new ones. So it was better to empower. And yet, how rarely do we actually see that? So in many ways, it's actually really good that people are disobedient every now and then. And kind of if, if the process doesn't like produce a good outcome, break it, do something to fix it. You just have to hope that you're in an organization that will eventually figure out that you are doing the right thing instead of being destructive. <laughs> Exactly. And in today's environment, you don't see it nearly often enough. And of course, that's one of the places where, where we can improve as organizations, that when someone breaks the process, you can try to see it from the viewpoint that they might be actually doing something that is really good for the company and for the organization as a whole. And we should maybe spend a little time listening to them. 
Yeah, it's, there are common sense things. I describe in the, in the book on risk that we wrote, there was a requirement in Afghanistan put down by people in the United States that every soldier wear all the pieces of body armor issued to them. And if they're a casualty in some way, when you report their casualty report, you have to write down all the pieces they were wearing. Now, somebody back in the United States had the right intentions. I will protect American soldiers by requiring them to wear all this. Well, anyone who's been to the mountains of Afghanistan knows you don't walk to 12,000 feet wearing all the body armor. It's just you are no longer mission effective. And so people had to make decisions on the ground that says, I know what the rule is. That doesn't make sense. We're not going to do that. And yet they were taking a certain amount of risk because they could, in fact, be held accountable for somebody not wearing all their body armor. We need to tell people if we give you an order and it doesn't make sense, do what does make sense. On that topic, actually, risk management in general easily becomes bureaucratic and, and, and so on. And, and you basically, you just tick the boxes, but there's no actual thinking involved anymore. So what, what are your thoughts on what's the best way to make sure that risk preparedness doesn't go stale? I think one thing you can do is what we would call a pre-mortem. And that is, if you're going to do undertake a new business activity or an event and that sort of thing, is go through all your planning. And then before you execute, get key players in the room, to include some junior ones, and, and start with the presumption that you failed. It didn't work. You lost a bunch of money. You, you failed in the military operation. You lost the election. Whatever you didn't want to have happen. And then say, why did it happen? And then tell people to tell you what's in the back of their mind. Because how often do we do something that doesn't work out and you talk to somebody and they go, yeah, I was worried about that. I didn't think that was going to work. That kind of a thing can release people to put those things on the table that say, you know, in reality, I'm really worried about our ability to get this thing done. That's a real risk to us. Another thing you can do is say, okay, what are we going to do if this does happen? And if you force yourself to think through that and you start to say, all right, If that happens, what are we going to do? Pick up the pieces, do X, Y. It, it gets a different mindset in the organization that says we are going to go forward. Those of us who still have jobs or survivors or whatever scenario we're talking about are going to have to pick up the pieces and do it. And it often informs us a lot about, one, what we can do to be prepared for that, but also the mindset that we need in the organization to have that ability. In your book, you also present several tools that can be used to be better prepared for risk. Uh, assumptions check, functional exercises, red teaming, and so on. So which of these is kind of your go-to method? And, and can you walk me through how to use that specific method? Yeah, there are a couple. I'll start with the first one, assumptions check. You know, how many times do you build a business plan or any plan for anything and Then when you go forward and you have challenges, you're very unhappy because something didn't play out the way you expected it to. The car broke down, the, the market wasn't there for your product, you, you name it. An assumptions check is where you start and you say, what are the things I'm assuming to be a certain way that I can't necessarily guarantee? So for example, I am assuming that this key talent that I've got here is not going to leave. And that person is going to be available for that. I'm assuming that we're going to have available capital 
to fund what we're trying to do. I'm assuming that the day I want to conduct this big event, that there won't be traffic jams and therefore people will actually be able to get there or attend the event and we'll be able to, to get the positives out of it. There are always a series of assumptions and you say, well, I know those things for facts. Well, there are a number of things that aren't facts. You wish they were. <laughs> you wish you absolutely could know or guarantee something. But for planning, you have to make an assumption of it. And typically, as human beings, we tend to make an assumption that that which has happened in the past or is happening now will continue in that direction at that normal velocity. We just think that because it's been that way every day, we have a very difficult time getting our mind around the idea that it could be dramatically different. And so you've got to look at the assumptions you're basing your plan on and then pressure test them. Is that rational? Is that really a good assumption? What are the dangers involved if that assumption turns out to be incorrect? And often you can't do anything. You might change some assumptions. You might say, well, that, that's too dangerous an assumption. But at a bare, bare minimum, what it does is it makes you much more sensitive to understanding that, you're, that the, uh, the foundation upon which your plan is built could be at risk. The second thing is what we call a war game. And a war game is, it sounds like a military thing. It's really just taking through anything you're planning to do and testing whether or not it survives competition in the marketplace or other pressures that come from it. In a war game, you typically take a plan, a military plan, and you have someone play the enemy, but you also put other things into it. And you just see whether under those constantly changing conditions, whether your plan works out. And they've, they've got big computerized war games and all sorts of things now. But it can be much simpler than that. You can simply almost test yourself, say, okay, I'm going to open a new store on that block and we're going to sell X and it's going to be great. And then you say, okay, well, that's going to be great. Well, what if our competitors go three doors down and open a slightly bigger or better store? What happens there? And, and you can take all these and, and you don't have to be off and doing strange things. You can just say, wow, maybe my plan isn't durable enough to survive some pretty obvious counter moves or things that could happen. So it's just a way of seeing whether your plan is resilient enough to go through the realities of, of what's likely to happen. Yeah. And going back to the assumptions, Jack, and, and talking about assumptions, I think I think one of the really important things to start with is is simply treating everything as an assumption. And and that's actually it's really hard sometimes to understand how many of the things that we think are true are actually assumptions about the world that we have. And then being able to actually speak them out, that to even identify them as assumptions is really actually difficult sometimes. And another thing that I kind of came to my mind as, as you were talking about assumptions is, is the, the nature of complexity and, and how in, in this complex domain that we often operate in, it's pretty hard to validate those assumptions to make like to understand whether they are actually true or not because often if we try to analyze them try to like do some study on them we're not going to actually be able to validate whether they're true or not it's actually doing something that is the only way for us to realize whether this was this assumption was true or not and you can't even develop things that says if this happens why will come from that 
Because in a complex environment, the reality is why may come, why prime may come, or three why may come, because it's just so complex. All you know that if this isn't, if this assumption does not turn out to be true, you've got a lot of different things that could come out of that. And what are you going to do about that? There's not a guarantee uh, response. And talking about war games, I like the ones that I've been a part of. I think the uh, the most important things, or the kind of most interesting things in in many ways, have been the kind of nitty gritty details that come out of those. It's kind of the seams uh, in between things that you kind of, for example, I rem remember running one one of them uh, where we had this like production failing situation, and and one of the major issues that we had was that all the phone numbers that we didn't needed to call weren't easily available. It was just like, we can find them, but it'll take time. And you don't have that time right now. And one of the kind of end results from that board game or that exercise was that we simply put those numbers to be easily available if the situation arises. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you, you find limitations or weaknesses. You also find places where you've got a bit of capacity. So if you go through war games, something happens, and then you do a workaround because you find out you've got extra trucks or whatever. Now that goes into your bank and says, well, I actually have things I can do when different things happen. But identifying all those, it, it really educates you about your organization and, and how it operates and what it can and cannot do. So if there's one thing that every organization should do to improve their risk preparedness, what would that thing be? It starts with communication. You know, if you've got really good communication, and, and in the book we describe communication is not just the ability. We've, we've both got cell phones, so we could call each other if we want. Well, if we never do, we don't have communication. We have the potential for communication. And then the, it goes through, am I willing to communicate? Will I call you if I need to pass information? And then the question is, is the information accurate and timely? is what I communicate of any value, and then of course your ability to digest or understand it. So if you really go through all of that and say, are we truly communicating? When things start to happen, can we get a clear picture? Can we pass instructions for execution, do all the things necessary? In a military operation, if you want to defeat a foe, traditionally the first thing you do is try to cut their communication so that you are dealing with them piecemeal. Well, often we cut our own communications in organizations by culture or habit or you name it and make ourselves more vulnerable. So I'd say you have to get that right. It is the prerequisite for everything else you do. An inability to, to uh, communicate typically guarantees failure. What are some of the common organizational structures that you've seen that are either especially beneficial or especially detrimental? Yeah, it's funny because there are some really good things about structure because they create identity in certain organizations. They create a sense of cohesion. They typically increase the competence of the people in a certain part because they're around people who do the similar thing. So all the finance people or the human re uh, resource people get better at that narrow part of it. And so we feel good about that. We, we develop these teams and so they get more cohesive, more effective, more motivated, and that's great. But we sometimes forget that the structure tends to segment the organization. Structures can even limit the, uh, the understanding that members have of the wider organization. You know, you look at a very small startup 
everybody knows everything because you're around a single table. There's a handful of people. They can finish each other's sentences. And so they're very good at all moving in a direction or handling things. Then as they get bigger, they get organized. Someone says, well, you guys got to get organized. And they do. And it's necessary. But in so doing, they start to create issues they don't even know are there until they start to have communications problems and, and all those things. So it's having a constant appreciation that you are dealing with something as hard as nuclear react, you know, nuclear reaction. You're trying to keep entities engaged, but not let them melt down or explode. And I guess, guess figuring out, once again, we're coming back to the communication, that figuring out structures that kind of enhance communication will have uh, like a huge impact on many aspects of the organization. And constantly testing that because you can walk through an organization, everything's to be humming well, and you don't know if people are really communicating. You've got to find yeah. ways to, to find out whether they are. And I think they're forcing functions too. They're interventions that you do, creating cross-functional teams, putting people across organizations, all the things to keep communication going. Because as soon as you stop looking at it, I would argue within a month, you've got a problem. And you won't necessarily know that. So uh, one more in interesting thing that uh, you say in, the, in, in your latest book is, is you talk about how narratives define our organizations. So essentially, I think what you're saying is that the stories we tell about ourselves uh, define who we are. Can you talk a little about that? We identify ourselves as a profession or a team member or whatever, and it affects our behavior. Uh, when I was in very elite military units, I stood a little taller. I held myself to higher standards because that was the expectation I had for myself. I didn't do certain things that if I'd been in another organization, I'd like to do because it was just easier. But in those organizations, I self-identified that way. And so it became very important. The narrative became extraordinarily powerful to me. That's true of nations. That's true of, of all kinds of organizations. And it drives how we act. Now, there's some challenges with it. If the narrative goes off track, meaning the narrative can suddenly be something that's hateful or dangerous, the Nazi party or, or you name it, the problem is it's still powerful. It doesn't lose any of that power because people identify with it and they behave accordingly. And so you have great danger in that. And then the last one is if you have a disconnect. You've got an organization and you say, we believe in these very important important values. But then when people inside the organization or outside as well, see that that's not actually what is done in practice. There's what we call a say-do gap. Inside the organization, you get cynical, you know, and people start to, to not believe. Outside the organization, people sort of smirk at it and they go, yeah, that organization says they're for these values, etc., but they're really for greed or what, you know. And, and people just sort of discount it. And so understanding that this narrative, you're going to have one in your organization, whether you do it or not. But if you don't control it and understand it, it can easily sort of gallop away with you. If we think about how is company culture born, I think one of the things that creates company culture is the structures that we have, for example. So if you have 
structures in place that enforce or create uh, collaboration, you're probably going to get collaboration. And, and if you focus on individual incentives, for example, you're probably not going to get a company that has a culture of collaboration. And another thing is these narratives that they have also have a huge impact on the company. The, the stories that we talk about or the, the, the stories that we tell about our company, they also become kind of reinforcing stories that we, once again, like you said, we kind of try to live them. We try to make sure that these narratives are true because we want them to, to be true and they're good stories and we want to live by them. So I think these narratives are one way to kind of, it's a concrete way in how we can affect the culture that we have in the company. Well, people identify with stories. If you go to a nation, there will be statues and monuments built around stories. And sometimes those stories are a little bit sterilized. You know, the person who's on the statue may not have been quite as thrifty, brave, clean, and perfect as we want to believe. But that's not important. What's important is the narrative we're trying to communicate is someone who is either patriotic or, or uh, courageous or, or whatever we're trying to celebrate and bring forward in the organization. And you go into a big company and you see a picture of the founder and that founder's you know, doing some humble task really hard as they start the company. And that's because we want people to look at that and say, that's our DNA. That's who we are at heart. And so they become really powerful. Unfortunately, they all get, often get stressed if they are contradicted by other things that we actually do in our behaviors. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you're in luck because there is more to come in a few weeks' time. I would appreciate your help in spreading the word since it has been a while since the previous episode aired. Share this episode on social media, rate the podcast, and tell your colleagues and friends about it. Thank you. We're going to round out this episode with some music. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you probably already know that I also do music. Like this podcast, it's been something I haven't had much time for in the last couple of years, but that has now changed too. I recently recorded a cover of Slipknot's song, Snuff. I sang the vocals, played the guitars, programmed the drums and other instruments, and did the mixing and mastering. With this, I hope you have a great week and talk to you again in a few weeks' time. Bury all your secrets in my skin And come away with innocence And leave me with my sins The air around me still feels like a cage Love is just a camouflage For what resembles rage again So if you love me Before I know My heart